Romans 12, and I'll read from the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than yours, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, (coughs) and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. As we've seen each week that we've looked at this, Paul is speaking here about how we respond to God's love for us, God's grace, God's wonderful salvation. How do we respond to what is done? Well, our response is one of total commitment to him. We offer our body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's our only reasonable response to the amazing love of God that he has displayed towards us. And as we give ourselves to God, we find ourselves joined to others who have also given themselves to God, others who are also loved by God. We come into the church, the body, and in that body we we are members with different functions. That's what he's been talking about in verses 1 through to 8. Now we're going to move on to verses 9 and 10 this morning, where Paul now begins to spell out some of the implications, further implications, of what is said in verses 1 and 2. What does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? What are the implications of that? What does it mean to not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? What does someone look like who has responded in that way? In other words, what are the implications for us? And that's what Paul begins to spell out in these verses beginning here in verse 9. And the first thing he refers to, he says, love must be sincere. Now, you may or may not have realized this, but up to this point in the letter, when Paul has spoken about love, it's always been about the love of God. Back in chapter 5, for example, he made some great statements about God's wonderful love for us. Chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. 
And then verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in chapter 8, verse 35, those uh, well-known words where he kind of issues this challenge. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? He says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Up to now then, when he's spoken about love, he's spoken about God's amazing love for us. Now he turns it and he speaks about love that we show to one another. And he says, love must be sincere. Now before we look at what he means there, I just need to comment on something that is perhaps a little bit strange to us about what he's saying. For us, love is an emotion, it's a feeling, and perhaps it's a somewhat random feeling. Can you command or require love? Love must be sincere. Well, love is something that happens. We talk about falling in love. And then people sometimes sadly say to someone, I don't love you anymore. That's, of course, the substance of endless wailing country songs. Uh, she doesn't love me anymore. And it's, so it's kind of random. You, love hits you and then it goes. And that's why so many marriages break up where, sadly, they say to one another, I don't love you anymore. How then, you know, in, in a marriage service, there's a promise to love until death parts us. Can you really make that promise? What if love just floats away. They don't love you anymore. How can you, or can you, command or require love? It either happens or it doesn't. And yet, consistently, we find in the Bible that it is a command. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. There's a command. Love the Lord your God. Jesus then refers back to that in the Gospels. For example, in Matthew chapter 22, when someone to test him says, What's, what's the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands to love. And then, of course, in John chapter 13, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, again made love a command. John 13 and verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So, we think of love as something that kind of hits you. You fall in love. And it's an emotion. And indeed, we can, when we hear those commands, particularly to love the Lord your God with all your heart and so on, more introspective people will kind of turn in on themselves and think, 
do I really love God that much? We start examining our feelings. That's a very difficult one. How do you analyze the quality of your love? Well, people try it and get very depressed. Because it's a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, but I'm not sure that I do. Is it an emotion? Should I be full of emotion every time I think of God? Oh, or oh, I don't feel like that. Or maybe I don't love him enough. And we kind of go down the tube. Well, it's interesting. And maybe it gets us off that hook. If you look in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 20, you see the Ten Commandments, which Jesus summarizes as love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But actually the word love doesn't appear in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing love, or the word is mentioned, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And so on. Now there, what Jesus summarizes as loving the Lord your God with all your heart is actually expressed in saying, there's only one God and you're not going to have any gods except him. Right, exclusive, exclusive worship for this God. Not make any idol. I'm not going to make anything that takes the place of God. It's only God. It's talking about actions here. I, I'm not going to misuse the name of the Lord. I'm going to honor that name. I'm not going to take it lightly. Anyone, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And there's a day that he regards as special. I'm going to keep it as special. So you see, loving God is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's a determination, it's a decision. We don't have to analyze, do I really feel love, but have I decided there's only one God? Only one that I'm going to worship, I'm not going to turn anywhere else. It's him and only him. That's why love can be commanded. Now here... Paul is talking about loving one another. And again, it's a decision. It's how we treat people. It's not necessarily an emotion. Now, I'll invite you right now. Feel free to look around this meeting place. Does your heart leap every time you see someone? Oh, I love them. Well, maybe not. Maybe you think, I think I like them. Uh, love is an action. Love is a determination. It's a decision. And yes, emotions might well come. That's why in a wedding service, we can make a promise to love. Yeah, there'll be times when our emotions are all over the place. There'll be times maybe when we do feel, I'm not sure I love her anymore. 
I've never thought that, let me say. <laughs> but no, we're going to press through. We've made a decision. We've made a commitment. It's a promise. Now, Paul here then speaking about love and speaking of it as a requirement then tells us some things that love is and some things that it isn't. Love must be sincere. Or let love be (coughs) unpretended. The word is actually unhypocritical. Because a hypocrite, the Greek word hypocrite, is the word for an actor. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. Greek actors, they didn't sort of get into character. They held a mask in front of their face, a mask on a kind of stick. They held it in front of their face. Right now I'm a different character. Now I can put that down and be another character. It's very easy. Now, what Paul is saying here is not a mask, not a front. It's not pretense. Love must be unpretended. Love must be sincere. I don't know about you, when I look at that, I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of his friends, Judas, comes in and kisses Jesus. That wasn't sincere. That's the signal to his mates to come and arrest Jesus and have him killed. No, we don't put on a front. It's possible to appear loving to people, but actually behind their back, we're very, very different. We say the right thing or do the right thing, but actually we're we're speaking against them or spreading rumors or whatever. Now, love mustn't be a pretense. Love must be real. And it should be real because... If we're Christians, we've been born of God, born again by God. He is our Father, and the Bible says of him, he is love. That's who he is. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone... Everyone who loves has been born of God. This is the sign that we're born of God. We're we're like our Heavenly Father. This is what He's like. And therefore it's what His children are going to be like. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. Because God is love. So because of who God is, we will also love. That's why it's such a priority That's why it's so important. And that's why the apostles in their letters continually refer to this matter. That's why Jesus made it a command. He said, that's how people will know you're my disciples. It's kind of the hallmark of people who have been born of God, who belong to God. But actually they love one another. This is not just an incidental. This is basic and it is to be real. And it can be real because we're born of God and... Because God has given us his spirit. God pours out his love into our hearts by his spirit. And one of the fruits of the spirit is love. If we're filled with the spirit because we're born of God, then we are able and we will love one another. However, 
sometimes it has to be worked at. It's got to be maintained. At the start of this chapter, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if we're going to have sincere love, unpretended love, (coughs) then we've got to guard our minds, how we think of one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, that wonderful chapter, which incidentally is sandwiched, of course, between chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, but both of those chapters are about spiritual gifts. And in the middle of talking about the use of spiritual gifts, Paul has that wonderful chapter about love. And here, in Romans 12, he's been speaking about how we use the gifts that God has given us, and he immediately speaks about love. In other words, these gifts operate within a context of love. We'll say more about that. But in 1 Corinthians 13, where he speaks of the absolute priority of love, he says uh, in verses 4 onwards, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps, <coughs> keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul is speaking there about what's happening in our minds, the way we think of other people. We don't keep any record of wrongs. We don't jump to conclusions. We we protect, we, we rejoice with the truth. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, not easily angered, and so on. We need to work at it. God's love is in us because we're born of him. Now we've got to make sure we don't let any, anything get in the way of it, or quench it. So there's sincere love for one another. Love must be sincere. So we refuse to listen to hearsay. We refuse to listen to rumors. We refuse to voice suspicions. Now we rejoice with the truth. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Love is real, unpretended. Now having said that, Paul then says something that seems like a totally different subject. He says, hate what's evil, cling to what is good. It's not a totally different subject. He's continuing to speak about the quality of our love for one another. And really he's saying it's also a discerning love. You see, love, well, there's a saying, love is blind. Love also can be bland, where it's, well, it's just a refusal to ever be in any way judgmental, because that's unloving, where it's an undiscerning acceptance of everything at face value. We're never going to criticize. We're never going to say anything is wrong because to criticize is unloving. To say anything is wrong is unloving. Well, here, Paul says, love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what is good. For people who've got a kind of bland love, 
Discernment will be regarded as unloving. Discipline is certainly just not on. Because discipline and love, just to someone who's got this woolly idea of love, the two things don't go together. Now, what Paul is saying here is a very strong statement. When he says, hate what's evil, he means hate. It could be translated, I think one of the other versions says, abhor what is evil. Something is abhorrent to you, to you turn away from it in disgust. No, we totally reject what's evil and cling to, the word is actually to be glued to. So that's two very strong words. So love is not a refusal to ever say anything is wrong. And interestingly, the wonderful chapter that I've referred to, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter about love. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I've got faith that can move mountains, but haven't love, I am nothing. And then the chapter ends. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That wonderful chapter about love is in a letter that Paul is writing to a church telling them off for not exercising church discipline. Back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It's actually reported, he says, that there's sexual immorality among you. And he says, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't sound very loving. Oh yeah, discipline and love go together. Paul goes on to say, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? What he's saying is, if you don't deal with this, the whole church will be harmed. You don't deal with it, actually people will suffer. It's got to be dealt with. This year for me has not perhaps been the happiest year of my life. That's to say the first six months of this year uh, were decidedly tough. Why? Well, because a very unloving, a very unloving word was brought to me. You have got cancer. I mean, what a cruel thing to say. And then they cut it out to attack me with a knife. It's terrible. Well, no, because if they hadn't, they said... Well, it's a particularly nasty form of cancer, and it would have spread. So for my health, that harsh statement was needed. How judgmental. And then radical surgery for my good. In the church, well, in the Corinthian church, radical surgery is necessary. There's sin here, and unless it's dealt with, unless this person is removed, that sin will spread. And the whole church is harmed. Is it unloving to exercise church discipline? No, it's necessary. And it's, it's an essentially a loving thing to do. People with a bland idea of love, where you never say anything's wrong, they have a problem with church discipline. How unloving. No, it's not. 
Well, take this. Hebrews chapter 12. You know the words, I'm sure. Hebrews 12 <coughs> and verse 5. The writer says, you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The two go together. Discipline is for the welfare of the one being disciplined. Those with a a bland sense of what love is then have a problem, a major problem with the idea of God judging sin. And so they'll say, how can a God of love punish anyone? And of course, in saying that, they have to ignore whole chunks of the Bible. They'll say, no, surely love must win, and surely no one can ultimately be punished. And indeed, what happened at the cross can't really be sin being punished, because God is love. He wouldn't do anything like that. No, God is holy, and God disciplines those he loves, and he punishes. And it's God who says, hate what's evil, love what is good. God is so loving that he punished my sin at the cross in his son. God, God's love is demonstrated in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let's not try and turn love into something kind of woolly. No, it, it's, it's strong, it's pure, it's good. And in the church, sincere love is unpretended, but it's also discerning. Read your Old Testament and you can see there, Israel's history was a sad, sad story of their refusal to be discerning. God said very specifically when they went into the promised land, the land he had given to them, don't do what the inhabitants of the land do. Reject that. They were too vague. There's no harm in it. So they became like the people that they'd moved in amongst. And the nation suffered. It was not loving. Great harm came to them. Because they refused to call sin, sin. So love is sincere. Love is discerning. Then he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's a family thing. It's a very difficult (coughs) expression to translate there. Be devoted to to one another is actually... It could be, have a family affection for one another with brotherly love. There are two references to family affection. Brotherly love and the kind of affection you have in a family. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So this love that is present in the church is because God has brought us into a new family. And that's the, the picture that the New Testament most normally gives of the church. It's a family, not an army, not a business. It's a family. 
where people who are born of God have God as their father and then they find one another as brothers and sisters. When we, when we join the church at our family night, we call it a family night for that reason, our family night on Friday, we had, I think, about 10 people joining the church. Wonderful. When people join the church, it's not just getting your name on a list. It's coming into a family. It's got to be that. It's not just being a member. It's being part of a family. That's got to be worked out. It's, the reality has got to be realized. It's, and it, it, it's not just a matter of calling people. And I, I don't hear this amongst us here, for which I'm very grateful. But it's not a matter of calling one another brother or sister. Some churches do that kind of thing, and you kind of, um, or even dear brother. And I actually, last night, uh, Mary and I were over with my sister. I've never called her sister, and I don't think she's ever called me brother, because um, we're family. And in the church, we're family together. So it's got to be realized, got to work at it. It's very easy to join the church and still remain very kind of private where people are not admitted into what we think and how we are and so on. But we need to work at it. And we need to really put effort into relating as family across age divides, Across the kind of divide of the, the kind, the, 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 the kind of group we normally would want to mix with. No, we're coming to a family where we are brothers and sisters together, all age, all races, and so on. God's family. And within that, brotherly love. Be devoted to one another. Have a family affection with brotherly love. I mean, it's just, a trivial thing, but that's why we always mention birthdays. It can seem, oh, why do we do that as the church gets bigger? Surely this is getting a bit irrelevant. No, in a family, you want to mark one another's birthday. It's important. These little things matter. It's great when people do give one another birthday cards or just give gifts to one another and so on. It's expressing family. So many people in our society are isolated feel rejected and basically are lonely. The church should be the place where people come into something where they think, I belong here. Let's make sure no one ever comes in on a Sunday, comes in and goes out without having someone talk with them and have a real conversation, not just good morning. But to to express family. Love must be sincere. It's to be discerning, but it's a family thing. The church is not all about activities, and it's not some kind of business enterprise. It's the family of God, the household of God. And then, last, <coughs> lastly, honor one another above yourselves. This love is a matter of honor. This, again, is a difficult phrase to translate. Uh, I've just read it from the version I'm using, the NIV. Honor one another above yourselves. If some of you are using the English Standard Version, the ESV, there it says, outdo one another in showing honor. 
And actually, it's almost impossible, or it is impossible, to say which is the right translation. Both of them are valid. I rather like outdo one another in showing honor because it kind of expresses, I don't know if it's meant to, but it kind of expresses almost a competition that we want to be the best at honoring people or we want to be the first to do it. But this whole thing of honoring, it does, again, it requires effort because honoring people is countercultural. In our society, we find it hard to honor people. We'll honor successful athletes. We'll honor successful sports teams for a while. But our, our culture is not one of honor. We're always looking for the downside. We're always looking for uh, the skeletons in the cupboard. We're, we're always looking to kind of put people down. Humor is full of put-downs. And here Paul is saying, outdo one another in showing honor. Now how do we show honor? Well, it can be a matter of just saying things, you know, well done for what you did and so on. That, But it, it's more than that. See, this is in the context where Paul has been speaking about exercising the different gifts that God has given us. Now, in a large church, different people have got different gifts, but maybe there's not always opportunity for everyone to exercise the gift that God has given them. How do we respond to that? How do we respond when there's a role we would dearly love to be given and it's given to someone else? I mean, why not me? Why, why have they, haven't they noticed how good I am at that? Haven't they noticed my gift? Why have they given it to this other person? And if we feed on that, in our thinking, we're then doing that other person down, I'm better than them, or I've been around longer than them, or whatever. No. To honor that person is to say, I'm I'm glad for them. I'm glad that in a sense, I've stood back so they can come through. I don't have to necessarily say anything. It's my attitude is one of, I'm honoring them. Glad they've got that job. Glad that they were able to exercise their gift and, and I couldn't, because it's good to hear them. It's an attitude of honor, which may well then result in saying something. We want to encourage them. Instead of hoping that it all goes wrong for them and then we can come through, we want to honor people. Outdo one another. To me, that, that creates a very exciting kind of environment where people are kind of on their front foot thinking, how can we honor other people? How can we make room for them? How can we express the fact we're thrilled that they're really coming through? Okay, it means maybe they're doing things that I'd like to do, but I'm I'm so thrilled to see them. Maybe it's someone younger than us, and maybe we can remember when they were a kid, and we say, isn't it terrific? The way they've, the way they've grown in God, now they're beginning to exercise that ministry. Yeah, I used to do that, but I'm so thrilled to see them doing it, honoring them. What Paul is speaking about here, 
in this whole passage. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and honor one another above yourselves. What he's saying here is radical. Because the church, as God designed it, is a radical, unique presence on planet Earth. There really is no other entity like this. Because this is, this is supernatural. This is radical because it's the life of God in God's people enabling them to express what God is like. Church is not about going to church. Church is about relationship. It's about the people of God loving God by putting him first and then loving one another by putting them first. And there's a sincerity about it. And there's a commitment about it that you don't find anywhere else. This is not incidental. This is not kind of airy-fairy stuff. This is the cutting edge of the church. When the church is like that, hey, it's got a message to people who don't know anything about love. People who do feel rejected. People for whom love has just gone so wrong. And they come into something that is pure, sincere, and relentless. The church, I say, is not just about going to church. It's about being the people of God. And let's, as we look at this this morning, yeah, there are things that maybe we haven't quite got hold of yet. Things yet we haven't maybe yet fully understood. Let's say we're going for this. We want... To have amongst us here something that is unpretended. Yes, it is discerning. We can cope with discipline. But there's a, a family bond where we're vying with one another to be the first to give honor. What a wonderful, wonderful family to belong to. Let's pray.